Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 543. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We are in the middle of a heat wave, would you believe? Guess what? Because we live on this, on right on the coast, sea fret, mist coming in. Oh, man, it was cooking on gas yesterday. And then I noticed around about seven o'clock when I went to check my bees that, uh, did you? Yeah, I went to check me in bees, man. They're here. Oh, 20,000 girls. I can't look after two. Man, hey, honestly, man, I am like a kitty in a sweet shop. You know, it's like my birthday come at once. It's, I keep going out to have a look, and there's a few things I need to kind of do first. They're in at the moment, these things called nukes. That's how I bought them, two nukes, which are little little mini hives, polystyrene ones with about six. I know this is not science fiction, but it is when you think about it, isn't it? The bees and the bees kind of world. So it's about six frames in, and... The idea is you leave them on top of your, your hives for a couple of days and then you, you just take their frames and put them into your box. Easy peasy, unless you get the wrong ones, the actually wrong frames. So they came in a what's called a national box and my frames are Langstroff. I think Langstroff they're called. Oh, so you've got to... Oh, this is... <laughs> anyway... <laughs> but it's just remarkable, you know. And I, like I say, I've got them in the in the back garden there, and I, I went and we we kind of picked them up, and they just got this like little kind of plastic yellow. It's about the size of a saucer, plastic like doorway, and you just slide it round, and there's a little hole behind it which lets the bees out. And when we first let them out, you know, from picking them up, and I only picked them up about four mile away. They just all came out, and I was thinking, man, you know, it's gonna, <laughs> the village is going to be just like inundated with swarms of bees. But it's quickly how you know straight away they start bringing in the little bags of pollen, and then on a night time, round about seven o'clock, they're all back in. That's just, they all go back to bed. You know what I mean? The, the whole lot of them are just in there, and you can just see, and you can just feel this box. You know, you touch it, and it's just this like, oh man, it's just like, oh. You know what I mean? Get them on Mars. We'll populate Mars. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> bloody hell. So, before, well, I'll tell you what the main fiction is, shall I? Shall I do that? We have Sylvia and Larry by Matthew Sheen. 
Then we are to the end of the month, and this is Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news. That's all coming in today's show. First up, though, big huge thank you, big huge thank you. We are on, or we were last week, 417. We are now 418, and we have actually, I think there's two people to thank. Dean Wilding. Dean, thank you so much, my good fellow. Thank you indeed. You are a bloody little star, yes. Don't forget, when you get the, you know what I mean? I just, I keep meaning to say this, and <laughs> it's rather important. The email you get from Perion, there's a private little feed from that, and you take that and you put that in your podcast. Then you get, like this show, without ads, you know, with anything like that. You get all the other stuff, whatever you've signed up for. So everyone that's kind of listening, if you, you know what I mean? I, I should say this. You get the email on that email, or you actually, if you log into your Patreon, you know, and go onto my page, there's the, the RSS feed there, and you can you can post it in, and then you get this, like you get this show twenty four hours, and you get it without ads or, or whatever. So, Dean, make sure you do that. And Gregory, 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 Bort, Bortier, Bort, B A U T E, Bort, Bort. I don't know, hey, Greg. What can I see? You trying you don't forget. Craig, get that link and then you get it, you get all, you know, without any ads and you get it on a Tuesday as well. Today, I am recording it today. Then I'm going to go and, I'm recording this, then I'm going to go and see me bees, say hello to the girls. <laughs> so, main fiction, Sylvia and Larry by Matthew Sheehan. Sheen, Shan, Sheen, Sheen. This story originally appeared in the anthology Lazarus Risen by... Berdoran Press in 2016. Matthew has a PhD in developmental biology and spent 20 years chained to a lab bench trying to understand why newts can regenerate arms and humans can't. He is now a science writer and librarian at a private research institute. He lives in Long Island against his will with his loving family and disdainful cat. His work has been published in the anthology Lazarus Risen and Orson Scott's Cards Intergalactic Medicine Show and you can find them at. There's a couple of links there for Matt as well. This story is narrated by Margaret Essex. Margaret lives the good life. Oh, Margaret, you've got the good... Oh, that's what I'm after. On a small piece of rural New South Wales, Australia, with an amazing man, a couple of pets, and the usual biting, stinging critters that make horror stories for all our visitors and several rambushkas. And she's got several rambushkas. Can I say that word? Wombats. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Sylvia and Larry by Matthew Sheen The bitch of transplant registries is that. If you're on one, you're praying for a stranger to die. For a brain transplant that they die young and healthy. Larry and I were having lunch at a sandwich chain we'd been going to for years when my prayers were answered. There's this game Larry and I play where we create bizarre backstories for the other diners. On our first date, the conversation had grown as stale as the basket of bread. I was two minutes from feigning a headache and leaving 
when he pointed to our waiter across the room. A fussy older man with too much grease in his hair and moustache and a horrid fake Italian accent, and said, His mother does his hair for him every night. But the moustache? He leaves that for his sister. She's got the steady hands. I laughed so much, I forgot the headache. We spent the rest of the dinner delving into the histories of every other table. And in fifty years, we've never stopped. The day my prayers were answered, he was distracted. His story about three estranged half-sisters behind the counter wasn't coming together. I lifted a spoonful of broth to my lips and put it back down, unable to face swallowing. Our game had become very one-sided since I got sick. Blinding throat pain hinders telling stories. I carry a small, dry erase board with me everywhere now. I can type faster, but I use all ten of my fingers, not just my thumbs. So no texting, and I haven't found a typewriter that fits in my purse. Block lettering on a whiteboard it is. I'd prefer shorthand, but Larry never learned to read it. Damn engineers. I resent having to write whenever I need words. There's nuance and meaning in inflection that gets lost. He was muddling through a tale of the sister's unknown shared father when his phone rang. Hello? Larry answered. I'd given up writing. Who is it? On the board. It only distracts him. And the last thing I want is to increase his confusion these days. So I listened to his half of the call and judged body language. Okay, sure, he said. Covering the mouthpiece, he whispered to me, Chapman's office. Receptionists put me on hold while she... Uh, yes? Uh, Dr. Chapman, hi. Uh, did the test results? Oh, mm-hmm. His eyes widened. He sat up straighter, grinned. A little. He tried to hide it. Mm-hmm. Noises. A little smile. Eyes started to beam. I see. And how long do you think? His face fell a bit. Oh, you can't narrow. I see. Finally, he took a deep breath put on his business face and said, We will. Thank you so much, Dr. Chapman. We will. Bye-bye now. He beamed at me for a minute and then took a big bite of his turkey club. I could have wrung his neck. I tapped my whiteboard with the marker. His slow chewing was deliberate torture. He finished by dabbing gently at the corners of his mouth with a brown paper napkin. Chapman has a new body for you, was all he said. I know, in my head, that the room did not simultaneously get larger and smaller, nor did all of the air get sucked out by Muhammad Ali throwing uppercuts to my diaphragm. I know that, logically, but that's what it felt like. The din of other people died away, 
the smells of coffee and baked goods vanished. The entire world was replaced by that one sentence, that one phrase, new body for you. Once my world stopped spinning, I scribbled on the board as fast as I could. What did he say? Tell everything! I tapped the board about twenty times. So, a young woman has had an accident, he began. I knew that was coming. It had to. A part of me, somewhere in my gut, was crying for this poor woman. It wanted to know who she was, what she'd been doing, what accident, and was it her fault, what was her name? But that part of me was shushed, and its voice drowned out by the excitement, the relief, the sheer thrill at a chance of life. That thrill in the face of this woman's tragedy, her family's loss, shamed me. Just like the cancer had destroyed my throat, a black and rotted section of my soul was consuming everything healthy and good in me, in its unrelenting fight to survive, to continue. She's all but brain-dead at the moment, he continued. Broke her neck flipping from a bicycle. There's no living will, so her family's trying to decide what to do with her, how long to keep her on life support. But she was a donor, so the hospital passed along her medical info to the National Registry. She's got your blood type, your serotype, and she's the closest to a genetic match we're likely to find outside of straight family. He said, statistical likelihood of rejection is as small as we can realistically hope for. We just need to wait for the family's decision. Now I already asked. He doesn't have a time frame. It's unlikely to happen within the next few days and may even take several weeks. But he said, be ready. Larry stopped talking and his look grew distant. We'd had this conversation enough that I knew what he was thinking. But I was too wrapped up in my own euphoria to see the signs in him. I tried to picture her in my head, not bruised and swollen as she must be now, lying intubated in a beeping room somewhere, but healthy and alive. I could be vibrant again. I've been feeling dim so long. I can only remember piecemeal how it felt to be shiny. What was her body type? Thin? Chubby? Pear-shaped? Lanky? Was her hair straight and flowing, thick and wavy? How was her smile? Even as I daydreamed, my heart sank. A perfect chance. Likely my only chance. Why did it have to come now? I was so wrapped up in myself, my chance at life, that I only barely registered Larry. There was wetness on his cheeks when he rose with the trays of empty plates and crumpled napkins. He mumbled. I want to say I noticed that I saw the signs and snapped out of the fantasy world in my head. But no. 
It wasn't until he was halfway across the restaurant yelling incoherently at strangers that I understood. Larry gets foggy, especially at times of heightened emotion. He gets lost inside his head and can't recognise everyday things like plates and trash bins. The disorientation and spotty memory make him suspicious of the people around him, and he lashes out in anger and confusion. The episodes have been getting more frequent and worse. I dropped the whiteboard and hobbled to him as fast as I could. Not, not so fast. I made sure I was in his direct line of sight before approaching and placing my hands behind his head. He pulled back at first, struggled. The fear in his eyes pierces me every time, stings me deep down. Those eyes saw me and said, Stranger! But I laid my forehead against his and made shushing noises, wind over the tongue and through the teeth. No voice box required, just lungs. The cancer may have leapt from larynx to lymph nodes to liver, but thank the Lord I still had my lungs. We stood, swaying and shushing. He struggled and pulled. I felt weak and held on to him as much for vertical support as love. There was quite a crowd around us, but they could wait. The manager hovered, asking nervous questions but his concern was for liability, not people. I saw only Larry. At first, he shouted obscenities at me, deprecations, but he quieted. He calmed. Then, he remembered. I knew there'd be an argument that night. The argument. When would Larry accept the reality of his condition and put our care into the hands of professionals. He insisted he was still well enough to provide me the hospice I needed, that he still had months of lucidity left. He would move to assisted living only after I was gone. As much as I loved him, that was no longer an option. Every day of our fifty years together, Larry made me feel a queen. He cooked, he cleaned. He brought me what I needed before I knew I was in need. He catered to my every desire, and I wanted for nothing. When I got sick, the difficulty swallowing and talking, the weakness and exhaustion, he was right there, with everything taken care of. When the chemo made me feel like a cancer patient, when the doctor told us the cancer had spread, when they took my esophagus... He was always there. But the fogs came, just as the cancer did. Forgetting things. The inability to recall objects' names. That wasn't so bad. But then there were the nights when he ruined dinner with forgetting or brought me an acidy soda instead of water. I never minded. But those were the nights I woke to him crying. The first time he forgot who he was, he was alone at the convenience store. That was the first time he threw a fit, 
yelling at customers and knocking boxes of doughnuts onto the floor, stomping bags of chips. We paid the damages, and the manager agreed not to press charges. But it wasn't the last time. As long as I'm there, he calms quickly, and then he remembers. But when I'm not there... Our neighbour, Walter's daughter, Rachel, was on the staff at one of the nicer assisted living facilities in the area. I've met with her a few times, making my way next door two steps at a time over the grass with my tennis ball walker, enduring humiliating sessions of Walter asking prying questions disguised as sympathy, also I could pester her for brochures and get an idea of the type of care Larry could be getting without me. I loathe that walker and Walter. But still, Larry refused to call and set up an appointment. We drove home from the sandwich shop in silence. I suppose every couple has their silences. We have at least a dozen. Contented, playful, frigid and so on. This one was... apprehensive. I usually don't drive. With my health it hasn't been an option. Larry handed me the keys without a word and climbed in the passenger side, and thus began the silence. The argument didn't wait. The silence itself was an argument. Every past block that he didn't speak was a declaration. He glowered and brooded, because the episode in the restaurant, the fog, made a strong point that he couldn't deny. We pulled into the driveway, and the sudden silence of the engine shutting off was like an exclamation. In the house, I trudged to the sofa. My medications were on the coffee table. There were vitamins for my nutrition and calcium for my bones. Telomere extenders and protein pills to strengthen my brain. Those were for the surgery and extended lifespan afterwards. Then there were the EP2 blockers. Those were a sad mockery. They're supposed to fight off Alzheimer's preventatively, given to everyone on the waiting list. But apparently, Larry was too advanced for them to help him. I hid those from him when I took them. Larry went straight to the kitchen and poured me water. He had it in my hand before I could even think to write it on the board. By the time I'd choked down the litany of pills, I'd finished the water and was in tears from the pain of swallowing. I wanted to sit with him. I wanted a different silence. I wanted to lay my head on his shoulder and watch the rise and fall of his chest as we wasted the night away. Larry sat. I put the whiteboard in his lap and he wrapped an arm around me as I scooched up next to him. His embrace was warm and cosy, safe, and I snuggled in tight. I sighed. There was a lot in that sigh. Contentment, exhaustion, fear, excitement, worry. He read it all. He spoke. I know 
I know. But not until after your operation. The dejection was palpable. So I nuzzled the side of his chest with my head. I'd grown back a peach fuzz. No chemo once on the waiting list, and it itched like mad. I wanted to share with him all my worry, my sorrow, my frustration. But words alone on a board come across cold and mean. You need care. I can't give. Before, not after. Call Rachel. No, he said hard and fierce, with a hint of stubborn pleading. Now that they have that protein and stelsem goop that fixes severed spines, transplanting a healthy brain from a dying body into a young fit body was just a matter of logistics, so Chapman said. Chapman himself had performed six of the eighty-something successful brain transplants. He'd gone into tedious detail explaining the surgery to us. Something about sliding a wet noodle out of one straw and threading it into a new one. Afferent and efferent nerves, hypothermia and hydrogen sulphide, the words had washed over me. I remember the spider plant hanging behind his left shoulder, looking desiccated. A watering can stood on top of the bookcase beside it, cornflower blue, with a long and narrow spout. I remembered praying it was his secretary's job to water it, and that this man talking about axon regeneration couldn't be responsible for such a neglectful death. The problem was the post-surgical recovery period. It takes two to three weeks for most of the nerves to reattach, and they don't tend to do it in the same place. As Larry put it, huh, it's like the motherboard has a whole new wiring diagram, and the processor has to figure it out on the fly. Bless his techy heart. All I knew was that Chapman said... If the heart and lungs are working on their own by a month post-surgery, it's a good sign. And if the eyes are open by six weeks, it's a great sign. Other than yes-no blinking, meaningful communication could take four or five months. Of course, after that, and a piddly little 24 months of intense physical and psychological therapy, you get to live out the rest of the new body's natural lifespan. In this case, as much as 70 more years. Maybe even another transplant after that. And another. I'd be skipping to a new starting line. While Larry ground down on his way to the old finish. But Larry's doctors didn't think he had enough meaningful time left to be there when I woke. Time where he's clear more than fogged in, or even clear at all. By the time my brain had enough control over the new body to wake up and recognise him, he wouldn't be able to recognise anything. So that was it. Either we tough it out, praying he stays lucid until the cancer kills me, or 
I get the transplant and bug out early. Either way, I have to leave him to descend alone into terrifying isolation surrounded by things he can't describe to people he can't recognise. I haven't made peace with that yet. How did those women get into the lifeboats on the Titanic while their husbands stayed behind? How did they go on afterward? Did they turn to look back as they were being rowed to safety? I woke at two. Throat on fire and bladder screaming for release. Larry was gone. His pants and slippers were still here, so we couldn't have gone far. I looked out the bathroom window. The car was gone. There must be ways to send messages to 911 without speaking, but I never needed to learn them. I had Larry. It took me over ten minutes to make my way next door to Walter's house, dragging my board and marker in my purse and stopping to rest on the walker every three steps. Another fifteen minutes for my weak slapping at the door to rouse him. Three hours later the sky was still dark, but my house was brighter and busier than Times Square. Neighbours had come over, either to help or gawk, didn't matter which. Some policemen had come and gone, apologetic in their helplessness. That's when the phone rang. Walter took the call. It's Larry. They found him up in Danbury. He's fine, but disorientated. Trying to break into apartment on River Street, Walter announced, peacock proud, as though he'd found my husband himself. Danbury? Our first apartment? I wiped my cheeks and took the phone. I opened my mouth to speak, then closed it as my helplessness sank in. The stranger on the other end of the line waited for me to talk. Larry was shouting in the background, going on about bursting pipes and unsafe pressure. He needed to relieve himself, but he lacked the words. I handed the phone back to Walter, picked up the whiteboard and started writing. An hour later I was in Danbury too, shushing and swaying in the police station with Larry as the sun came up. Walter drove us home. The morning was light enough that younger eyes than ours could have read the whiteboard, but I flicked on the dome light. I dug the marker out of my purse. My eyes were burning from tired, and the stress and travel of the night had left my stomach a mess. The whiteboard wobbled and shook, both from Walter's driving and my unsteady hands, making my letters barely legible. No transplant till you taken care of. I can't. Before I could cap the marker again, Larry conceded. I'll call Rachel today. There was relief, but no joy in my smile as I wrote. No need. She in living room, waiting. I have vague auditory memories of things. People speaking, rustling cloth and beeping rooms. It's all hazy. There's no context for any of it. The sounds exist in a void. 
The world is a few half-formed sounds, and Larry's voice, thin and faint. I have no thoughts, no awareness, no impetus other than that voice. It's a beacon in the darkness, guiding me towards myself. Piece by piece, I begin to register things. In time, I'm aware of who and where I am. A memory, walking through our home, saying goodbye to our rooms, empty but for stacks of boxes, without curtains, diamonds of sunlight on the wood floors, spotlighted dust bunnies the size of golf balls. I remember a nurse, and her easy-going, almost dismissive demeanour as she came to wheel me away from Larry as we said our final goodbye. I could barely see Larry through the tears. His hand was trembling as he pulled it from mine to let it take me to my new life. These images, more emotion than memory, play across the backs of my eyelids as I listen to my husband speak. Larry is telling the story of our vacation to the White Mountains. And that's when I realise that though I hear him talking to me, I shouldn't. Most people head up there in the white time. They do it to go where they put their yardsticks on their feet and slide down the ground fast. Damn it, I can almost see the names. We went in the... The trees were all colours that time. Most of the colours were still up, but there were enough down that we could kick them as we walked. We smiled a lot, laughed a lot. No idea who she was, but I remember being happy. I remember remembering, if that makes sense. We were eating, and she told me about the people behind me. The man was married, but not to the woman with him, and they had rented out the kids at the table to try out what being a family would feel like. Huh, so I told her about the ones across the room. It was an older couple with their grandchildren. But I told her they were dying sorcerers who had lured the children into the forest, Hansel and Gretel style, and were planning on taking over their young bodies and living forever. He pauses, taking a deep breath. Huh, now, where did that come from? Clear as crystal. I can see the restaurant, the ugly sky-blue sweater the woman was wearing. I can smell the potatoes and roasting meat, so vivid. My eyes shoot open, and I attempt to wedge myself up onto an elbow. Hospital room. Day. Larry and Rachel are sitting under a muted TV, showing happy people on a beach with side effects scrolling interminably upwards beside their heads. I look around for my whiteboard, but I can't find it. A thousand questions flood my mind, along with a terrible sense of loss. The transplant. If he's here, then something went wrong, and I didn't get my new body. Did the donor die? Did her family change their mind? Were there complications? The torrent of possibilities swirl and swirl within me, 
and I can't ask a single question until I have a way to write. I croak out the word. I, uh... I leap at the sound. The voice is smooth and resonant, though the word itself is horribly mangled. Not my voice. And not a croak. Hands flail from my side to my mouth in shock, but I don't recognise them. The hands drop, and I exult in them. They didn't go where I wanted them to. Their movement is wild and jerky. Fine motor control would take months of physical therapy, they had warned me. My arms are no longer sunken and frail. Wrist bones no longer poke out. Neither do veins and tendons. They are young hands, full and flush. They are vibrant. I have my new, young hands throw back the covers of the bed so I can see the rest of my new body. The motion is spastic, leaving the covers half on my body, but I don't care. It's gorgeous. I'm gorgeous. Even obscured under the formless hospital gown, legs unshaven and muscles atrophied from weeks without use, I drink it in with indescribable elation. Oh, you're awake. I hope I didn't raise you with my chatter. I should have kept quiet. Truly sorry. Nurse, this young lady has woken up, Larry says. Rachel pats him on the back of his hands and comes to me. She sits in a chair by my bedside, wearing a smile so broad I can barely see her eyes. She whispers, Sylvia, it's so wonderful to see you awake. I'll give you two some privacy for a few minutes. Keep the nurses at bay. I've been bringing Larry here every afternoon since they first let us in. He got pretty bad at first. But once we started coming to see you, his decline all but stopped. He has no idea why we come, but he looks forward to talking to you all day. I'll fill you in later. I'm so glad to see you up. With that, she rises, dabbing at her eyes, and says, Larry, I'll be outside in the hallway, and you two can chat for a minute. Then she leaves the room, pulling the door shut gently behind her. His smile is friendly. He doesn't know me. A new body and an old husband. Two miracles I could never have hoped to receive together. Larry... He, he was here a little while ago, I think. Someone was talking about him anyway. But right now, it's just us. I'm sure the nurse will be in to help you any time now. Don't worry, little lady. I won't bite. You may want to cover back up, though. Gets a bit chilly in here. I'll have a look at what the thermostat's set to, he says, getting up. Too overwhelmed to speak. I wave him away from the box on the wall, with a flail towards the chair Rachel just left, hoping he'll sit with me. He does. Six months with everything in the world to say and no throat. I lie there next to my love, functional voice box, but still speechless. The tears leaking from my new perfect eyes erupt into full-on weeping.
the messy, uncontrollable, snotty kind. The back of my bed is elevated, and as I start to cry, I fall over and collapse against him, shuddering and sobbing. Larry, whose greatest feat of comforting in fifty years was silent hugs and earnest but cold problem-solving, sits me up, puts his forehead to mine, and quietly begins shushing me. It all washes out of me, the months of fear, pain, and loss. Once I finish, he cleans my face <laughs> and his shirt with the better part of a box of tissues. He holds me by the arms, keeping a polite distance between us. Do you have some family they can call in for you? People to care for you? he asks. Don't know where the nurses might have got to, but she'll be in for you soon. I'm still hiccuping and swiping at my face. I realise that it doesn't bother me that he doesn't know me, as long as he doesn't stop holding me. He looks at me, curious for a moment. Then he smiles and chuckles. Now, don't be getting any ideas. I know I'm a looker, but they tell me I'm married. One of those storybook loves, they say. Fifty years, if you can believe it. I guess it's a good thing I can't remember her, or else the missing would kill me, eh? Truth be told, I'm not entirely sure why I'm here. Been finding myself sitting in that chair most days, not sure where I go to when I'm not here, or how I get back, but there I am. I've been talking, sitting here with you. Didn't seem you'd have minded being asleep and all. I haven't been myself in a long time. Small boat in big waves, fog all around. Noises and lights in the fog that almost make familiar shapes. But damn it all, if talking to you sleeping here didn't thin the fog some. Made it so I could make out some of those half-seen shapes. I guess I'm just not myself when I'm not here with you. How do you like that? He takes my hands in his. And we sit there in silence, a companionable one this time. I've had my head cut open, my brain switched to a new body, and my new head sewn up. I've been in a coma in a hospital bed for who knows how many weeks, several of those spent on artificial respiration and circulation. I've said goodbye to most of my body and half of my soul. Since waking up, I spent the last fifteen minutes having a really good cry. And I am a stranger to my husband. It's safe to say I have a very large headache, and I don't mind the silence. I scooch closer to Larry and nestle my head close to his chest. He brushes the hair out of my face, and I realise... I didn't even see what colour it was. After a time, a nurse opens the door. Larry looks at me, 
and whispers, Funny thing about that nurse, I bet you never knew she's got this brother, and she waxes his moustache every night. See, she's got the steady hands in the family. <laughs> I forget all about the headache and laugh. And there you go. Matthew, sir. Matthew, Matthew, sir. Thank you so much indeed. Yes, I'll have, I'll have more of them, please. Come on, just you, come on, you can get it. Knock them out now. Any <laughs> Quick as you like. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And Margaret, what a voice, man. Thank you so much, man. Just, oh, thank you indeed. Enjoy that good life. That's just fantastic. Now, come over. Bring me bees. So... <laughs> I'll leave that in. Where'd that come from? Got me licking teeth stuck, man. Got me, got me, jump. <laughs> my teeth slipped. <laughs> hey, mind you, I'm doing a show without my glasses. <gasps> Bloody hell, I'm squinting like a little barn here. Anyway, it's the end of the month. It's Mr. JJ Campanella. Jim! Greetings and draconian crustaceans, my gwittertetically Harvellian listeners, and welcome to this June 2018 Science News Update. I'm your host for this utterly punctilious science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. All right, let's just start with the Idiot Scientist of the Month, since that seems to be the most popular thing I talk about now from month to month. So, we're going to go back in time tonight. I came across this marvelous article in the online journal OZ, O-Z-Y, by Sam Braswell. Braswell tells the amazing story of a 19th century idiot and forerunner to Harvey Weinstein at all by the name of Francis Galton. Now, Galton, you may have heard of before because he was the father of eugenics. And, uh, well, we should just take a couple points off for that. And add a couple because he was the cousin of Charles Darwin. Galton attended Cambridge University, from which he embarked on a full life of science, discovery, and hedonism, punctuated by remarkable insights and the occasional nervous breakdown, according to author Braswell. Galton is considered to have been a genius, though a seriously messed up one. He was best known for his theories of inheritance, human genetics, and selective breeding. He applied his knowledge of math and science to a wide variety of endeavors, from fingerprinting and the efficacy of prayer to his investigations into such British concerns as weather forecasting and how to brew the perfect cup of tea. More than anything, Galton loved measuring things, and he helped found the field of statistics because of that. And by the time that Galton hit middle age, he took to the streets of Britain to conduct a very unusual experiment that several former U.S. presidents, as well as the present one, would have probably appreciated. That's a very sad statement. Anyway, wearing a homemade device he kept in his pocket called his um, pricker, composed of a needle and paper affixed to the finger and palm of a work glove, Galton toured the country, obtaining data for what would become his beauty map of the British Isles. 
Galton did this by surreptitiously poking holes in three different sections of a piece of paper that he had labeled. As he would put it in his 1908 memoirs, he would tell whether the girls I passed in the streets or elsewhere were, quote, attractive, indifferent, or repellent, unquote. It was not the first time Galton had blended science and being a perv. As a young man in Africa, he had used a sextant to measure the dimensions of a busty native woman he described as a, quote, Venus among the Hottentots, unquote. Also, while staying in France, he had developed a classification system for the women he encountered, grouping them into six sizes, from thin to prize fat. Galton used the data he obtained from his pricker to map the attractiveness of Britain's female inhabitants. And he stated in the end, I found London to rank highest for beauty and Aberdeen, Scotland to be the lowest. In a letter to the journal Nature in 1879 entitled The Average Flush of Excitement, Galton recounts a visit to the Derby. And he noted that while he was there, he was able to assess what he called the average tint of the complexion of the British upper classes by observing distant crowds through an opera glass. He observed that after the race started, the crowd became, quote, suffused with a strong pink tint, just as though a sunset glow had fallen upon it, unquote. Galton thought he could work out the mood of a mass of people, even without even being able to distinguish one person from the next, just based on the general pinkness in the crowd. At his death, he left the enormous sum of 45,000 pounds to found the Laboratory of National Eugenics at University College of London. That term of eugenics was soon abandoned, although University College of London still has a Galton professorship. Uh -huh. I suspect this was probably heard at the Darwin residence at least once. Charles? Tell your idiot cousin Frank when you see him at the Royal Academy that his mother called and is concerned about the state of his soul. First story of the night. For you younglings out there, well, relative younglings, you need to start thinking of your colon at a younger age, apparently. There are no new guidelines from the American Cancer Society that were suggested on May 30th that colorectal cancer screening should begin at the age of 45 rather than at 50. Why? Well, because colon cancer seems to be getting worse and not better in younger people. Essentially, the recommendation is a response to the steady rise over several decades in the colorectal cancer rate in younger Americans. For people at average risk for colorectal cancer, that is, those without a personal or family history of the disease, and who haven't had inflammatory bowel disease, the American Cancer Society suggests regular screening begin at age 45, with either stool-based tests or visual exams, like a colonoscopy. The new guidelines were published a month ago or so in the uh, journal CA, a Cancer Journal for Clinicians. And the work was done by Dr. Andrew Wolf of the University of Virginia's School of Medicine and his research group. Colorectal cancer is the second most common cause of cancer death in the U.S. Lifestyle choices 
like smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, not exercising, eating processed foods and red meat, and not eating fruits and vegetables can increase a person's risk for the disease. The American Cancer Society says that screening can catch precancerous polyps and early stage cancers when they may be more easily treatable. Wolf says, quote, overall rates of colorectal cancer have declined by more than 45% since the 1980s, owing in part to screening. In sharp contrast, the rates of colorectal cancer have been increasing among all age groups between the ages of 20 and 49. Those ages have experienced a 51% rise in the incidence of colorectal cancer since 1994, unquote. Wolf and company aren't quite sure why the disease is increasing among younger Americans, but Wolf adds that, quote, it's not just relative to the older groups. The absolute case numbers are going up in the younger group, too. The increase we are seeing is not simply a reflection of the drop in the cancer among older groups who are being screened, unquote. So the next story of the evening is Nature's Highlight of the Month for May. This is actually molecular biology, which is my ballywick, and I thought it was so cool. So I spent weeks talking to my molecular biology classes about how genes are regulated. In complex cells like we have, called eukaryotic cells, it can get quite complicated how a gene is turned on and off and then regulated. There are a whole series of levels of control from the point before the messenger RNA transcription has even started to a whole slew of regulatory systems that are in effect after the protein is made. Bacterial genes are seldom that closely regulated, and I try to explain to my students that complex cells are regulated more closely because of developmental programs. Bacteria live from moment to moment, and they pretty much respond to the environment from moment to moment. Genes are turned on as they're needed, then turned off as they're needed. Eukaryotic cells need to worry about regulation in time and space. If genes are not turned on and off at the proper time, in the proper place, for the proper length of time, and in the proper sequence, then you may not have a brain, or a heart, or a liver, or a hand developing for you. It becomes very complex. This story has to do with a new way of controlling protein production by actually making mistakes and bashing organelles together. Ribosomes are the organelles that read messenger RNA and translate that information into proteins. It turns out that random malfunctions of the ribosomes help regulate protein synthesis according to new research. Dr. Pavel Baranoff and fellow researchers at University College of Cork observed that ribosomes occasionally misread the final mRNA instruction in the AMD1 gene. And rather than stopping, ribosomes sometimes just continue until reaching a second stop signal further down the mRNA. Malfunctioning ribosomes then run into the stalled ribosomes ahead of them, piling up in a queue, uh, sort of like train cars running into one another. And the idea is pretty amazing. Eventually, that queue of ribosomes 
attached to the mRNA covers the end of the gene and prevents the new incoming ribosomes from accessing it, and this blocks further protein production. The rate of translation and the number of protein molecules produced depends on the rate at which stalled ribosomes disengage and come loose off the mRNA, as well as the distance between the two stop signals that are in the mRNA. The other cool thing that Baranoff's team found was that the genetic signatures of this mechanism are detectable in over 80 vertebrate species, that is, animal species with a spine. That means that the regulatory process of piling ribosomes into each other as a regulatory system is widely conserved and probably dates back for millions of years. Onwards and upwards. You may have heard this recently in the popular news. Dr. Paul O'Connor and researchers from the Medical College of Georgia have evidence that a daily dose of baking soda may help the spleen to promote an anti-inflammatory environment. This could be therapeutic to the inflammation caused by autoimmune diseases, such as rheumatoid arthritis. The results published last month in the Journal of Immunology suggest that baking soda could be a safe and easy way to treat autoimmune diseases in the future. O'Connor orally administered baking soda solution to rats and observed the responses of their organs. The baking soda triggered the stomach to generate more acid as if anticipating a meal, but also stimulated the mesothelial cells of the spleen. The mesothelial cells line body cavities and the outside of organs like the stomach and the spleen, and the cells have microvilli that sense the environment and respond to invading organisms by signaling their organs' immune response systems. This includes the release of specialized cells called macrophages from the spleen. Macrophages basically uh, are sort of hunter cells that look around the entire body and all the tissues to look for invaders, and then they engulf them once they find them. O'Connor says, quote, We believe that when the baking soda is ingested, the signaling from the mesothelial cells tells the spleen to temper its immune response. This transmission of message is helped along by the signaling protein acetylcholine, unquote. So once the message is received by the spleen, it begins to produce more anti-inflammatory macrophages, as opposed to the aggressive inflammatory M1-type cells that are made by the immune system. The anti-inflammatory immune response may be induced from consuming baking soda, leading to a response from the spleen. O'Connor also says, quote, We think that the acetylcholine signals that we know mediate this anti-inflammatory response are not coming directly from the vagal nerve innervating the spleen, but from the mesothelial cells that form the connections to the spleen, unquote. O'Connor confirmed this thinking when he found that damaging the vagal nerve caused no disruption to the mesothelial cell behavior. However, when the spleen itself was touched, removed, or moved, the anti-inflammatory response was lost due to damage to the connections of the mesothelial cells. 
O'Connor finishes with, quote, you are not really turning anything off or on. You're just pushing it toward one side by giving anti-inflammatory stimulus. It's potentially a really safe way to treat inflammatory disease, unquote. So the next story also comes from the journal Nature last month, from the lab of Dr. V.D. Burkert of the Thomas Jefferson National Accelerator Facility. Since we are all SF aficionados to one degree or another, we have all heard of neutron stars and know just how dense the material is there. We've all heard that even a couple of cc's of neutronium could weigh tons. Now imagine a place where even greater pressure than that is occurring. And no, not in a black hole. We're talking about every molecule in your body, every atom, in fact. Burkert's new study finds that protons are under a lot of pressure. Proton innards are squeezed harder than any other substance ever measured. Burkert says, quote, It's really the highest pressure we have ever seen. Protons break the pressure record set by neutron stars, those incredibly dense dead stars that can form when a massive star explodes and its core collapses, squeezing more mass than the sun's into a remnant the size of a city, unquote. Berger's research group reports that the pressure in the proton's center averages a million trillion trillion times the strength of Earth's atmospheric pressure. That's around 10 times more pressure than found inside of a neutron star. Previously, scientists had theoretically predicted that such pressures might occur inside protons, but the new result is the first experimental proton pressure gauge. I guess that in proton research, the particle's internal pressure distribution has been a largely unexplored frontier. Even though pressure is one of the proton's fundamental properties, no one's really studied it. So I've been told by physics friends that protons are made up of smaller particles, including quarks, which are electrically charged, and gluons, which transmit the strong nuclear force that holds protons together. In the center of this ball of particles, Burkert and his colleagues report an intense pressure outward. But this record-breaking outward force is kept in check by an internal pressure from the outer regions of the particle. Burkert finishes with, quote, This pressure pattern parallels what happens in much larger objects, and in some sense, it's like looking at a star. Stars also have pressures that push outward in their centers, which counteract the inward pull of gravity. Protons are held together by the strong force, just as stars are held together by gravity. But the tiny protons are a different beast, so it's natural, but it's not completely trivial, that the two objects would have similarities pressure-wise. Unquote. Last story of the night. Riddle me this, dynamic duo. When are breast milk, vitamin D, and the shape of your teeth related? Well, the answer is, when you're a Native American. So this story starts anywhere between 18,000 and 28,000 years ago, as the 
last glacial maximum or the last ice age set in. And as temperatures and productivity dipped, a portion of the human population migrated to a region between Asia and North America called Beringia, where they remained isolated for about 10,000 years. That was before dispersing into the New World. When they actually did disperse, that population became the Native Americans. Now, nearly all Native Americans have quote-unquote shovel-shaped incisors. The origin of this trait has piqued the curiosity of researchers for a long time. It was proposed that selection for this trait happened sometime during the last Ice Age, when the Native American population was geographically isolated to Beringia. This trait arises due to mutations in the EDAR gene, which codes for ectodysplasin A receptor. This receptor, this protein, controls the density of sweat glands, the thickness of hair shafts, and the branching of ducts in the mammary glands. And it also controls the shape of your teeth. It was originally thought by scientists that this mutation arose due to selection for more sweat glands, and shovel teeth were kind of co-selected as the same gene controlled tooth shape and sweat glands. However, Dr. Leslie J. Haluska of UC Berkeley and her colleagues stated in a recent study in PNAS that they were not convinced that sweat glands were the answer. In latitudes above 48 degrees, where the Beringia population was isolated, there are almost no UVB levels. UVB exposure is critical for the biosynthesis of vitamin D, which regulates calcium absorption. It also regulates the immune system and whether you're going to get autoimmune diseases or not. So in these regions, the diet has to be fortified with vitamin D-rich foods. Although diet can supplement older children and adults and get them more vitamin D, having so little vitamin D in their mother's bodies puts breastfeeding children at a greater risk for vitamin D deficiency. Interestingly, the gene that causes shovel teeth also increases the branching of mammary ducts. It's known that vitamin D from mothers can be transferred to breast milk, and the study suggests that children in low UVB conditions would be particularly dependent on breast milk from mothers for their source of vitamin D. Haluska's study proposes that a mutation in the EDAR gene was selected during the Ice Age in the Native American population to influence milk content. This was to increase the vitamin D levels in breastfeeding children to counteract the low levels of UBB-induced vitamin D production. So, the tooth shape in Native Americans that initiated the curiosity of the researchers was simply a side effect. Ta-da! This story just shows how little we understand sometimes about how the environment and gene expression and evolution are really connected. That's all for me for now. As always, take care, 
Consider bicarbonate if your old bones be aching. If you think you're under pressure, think of those poor protons. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Always, Jim, always a pleasure. I got this file, because normally with Jim, and like I say, 10 years, so you, you, you know it's just coming there, never missed a beat. Not once, actually, Jim. But he gets, you get you get Jim's file about two days before you're ready to roll, you know what I mean? And just, I had this one probably two, well, at, at least two weeks. Jim's on holiday now, he's on his summer vacation. So I hope you're having a lovely time, Jim. Thank you so much. So that is it. Again, I will bang on about Patreon. Come on, let's get up there, man. We, 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 the goal is 500 and the next goal is, the little goal is just a tip over, 420. He's going to help us do that. Get out. What we on there down? Did I say four eighteen? Two people, two dollars. You get, you get the no adverts, man. How how cool is that? You get it twenty four hours earlier and no adverts with your own special feed. And if you little bounce up that little level, you get all the other things. Actually, <laughs> people, are, this is where I have to say a little apology because you meant to have. The last, which would have been Polymorph by Red Dwarf last week, or was it Sunday? Sunday gone? <laughs> because we, we get, because I'm looking after twenty thousand girls now, I, I'm just a little bit, I'm a little bit, to be honest, all over the place. I am all over the place, and oh, it's, yeah, so apologies for that. But like you say these. Jesus, somehow we kind of took over and I'm all just, don't know, I'm batting and ball. I'm, I'm nervous. Do you know what I mean? I'm not nervous yet. I'm just, I'm nervous for, I'm responsible. You know, I'm responsible for all these. And, and you hear, you know, that on the, and I've been watching kind of YouTubes and reading books and kind of all sorts that, you know, there is the, a very great risk of you kind of lose them over the window, you know, and that would just be, you know, they don't make enough money or something happens. You know, it's a, like a it's a fragile ecosystem you've got to look after. And it's oh anyway, anyway, there I'll stop getting told. So that's apologies for not getting the red dwarf. As soon as I can, I'm off for a few days now. I'm gonna sit down and just chill and just relax and watch Red Dwarf and get back into my comfort zone. Right. Until next week. What do I see? You see? What do I say? I went blank, man. Well, next week, just like I say, good night from me, man. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Start off the week. Enjoy yourselves. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. I don't get out much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm moving, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon
speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you And on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I wanna talk to you myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out